Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 35. I'm Kay, here with my co-host Taz. Hello! Today we'll be discussing the 13th episode of season 2, Look at the Princess, part 3. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Look at the Princess Part 3. John is finally a statue, theoretically safe from future assassination attempts. However, on his first night, Clavor and the Scarin diplomat decapitate him and dump the statue head in an underground vat of acid. As everyone searches for John's head, Aaron gets in trouble rock climbing with Casanova. Finally, the thrilling conclusion to the Look at the Princess trilogy. And... How awesome is it that we have a some episode summary that starts with we dropped John's head into a vat of acid and everyone's looking for it. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's where this episode starts and from there we get even more unlikely rescues and more alliances and Zan on her own still dealing with Kahenu with her own special brand of violence coming out. And it just all starts to come together and it just wraps up really satisfyingly. Yeah, all these all these strings that they've kind of built over the past two episodes really come together. Let's actually start with Zan because her plotline is one of the more is one of the smaller plotlines in this episode, and so it's pretty easy to just hit it really quickly. Yeah. So where we left Zan last week is Moya had, was drawn to the place where her builders were, and Kahenu, one of her gods has come aboard. He's kind of this smoky kind of like figure and has basically said, Moya can give birth to gunships, therefore we must decommission Moya. And then Moya starts shutting down her own systems, committing suicide as Kahenu wishes. And so both she and Pilot are dying or in the process of it. And so when we open with Zan, Zan is tinkering with the Farscape module and she refuses to leave Pilot and Moya. And that's where Kahenu finds her wondering why she hasn't left yet. And this is where Zan, you know, she's our priest. We've talked about it a lot. Our priest who is, has quite a violent streak within her. <laughs> so I'm going to play that first encounter that they have in this episode where we really see that come across. Life is precious. Yours should continue. And Moya's shouldn't. We have been through this. Moya can produce gunship offspring. We did not intend the universe to be subject to that affliction. I'm sorry. I must leave now. No. Kahenu! If Moya's life is to end capriciously, and pilots also, you and I are going to remain with them. Doubtful. DRD, now! In reverse! <laughs> Recommission Moya. I cannot. I will not. Turn the engine off. I will spare you if you spare Moya. Stop. I beg you. How does it feel for your prayers to go unanswered, Kahane? I think it's interesting that Zan uses rage there because 
it's clearly not a fit of anger. You know, this isn't smashing in someone's windshield because they've wronged you. This is her literally playing with John's module because John's module is the one that uses that sort of like suction kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas I assume that's not what the other pods use. Yeah, his his module has an engine that can, what happens is sucks the ghost, uh, the ghost, that sucks the, the spirity, cloudy, kahenu energy or energy or smoke, what his essence, which is smoky, into the engine and thus hurting him, trapping him, killing him. It's really difficult to tell at this stage what happens to him, but incapacitating him in any case. And yeah, it's it's premeditated. It's like serious, serious stuff here where she's trying to kill a god for killing Moya or putting Moya down rather. And it's so vicious. It is. It's it's cold rage, mm-hmm. but definitely not spur of the moment. Yeah, for certain, not spur of the moment and 100 percent Zan also. Yeah. Everything about this moment is very, very Zan. Mm hmm. Yeah. And. She is so dedicated to Moya here. We've talked about that in some of the previous episodes, you know, like Vetus Mortis, when everyone, John and Dargo especially, come to Moya's defense when threatened by Neelam. And here's Zan. Zan's like a mama bear, you know? She's mm-hmm. she's protecting her friends any way she knows how. And she refuses to give up. She refuses to back down. She refuses to leave. It's kind of a frightening dedication, actually. Yeah. I think that what's interesting about it is that Zan and Pilot and Moya, they have this this relationship that goes deep. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's the deepest because, I mean, definitely Aaron. And at this point, Dargo has had Moya in his head. So I think that there are other characters that have that sort of relationship with Moya. But this is Zan, a character who we saw in the body swap episode where she literally was trying for peace almost at the cost of somebody blowing up her ship. So to kind of have her driven to this place, I think it's not just her being protective, but it's her being so angry at Mm -hmm. Kahenu's lack of care about Moya's life. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that Kahenu even though he understands that Moya has a soul and is therefore a living creature, it's the way that he talks about Moya and it's the callous nature that he is not willing to build a new ship so that Pilot can survive. He is not willing to even just take away Moya's ability to have children and let her survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that interpretation a lot. Yeah, it's a reaction to the whole situation, not just not just to the threat to Moya. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I also, you know, everyone has different relationships with Moya and Pilot. And I don't think that the others necessarily have better relationships with her. It's more of them. They're all like different relationships. Mm-hmm. Because like when we saw the very first episode of the trilogy, one of the things that both Moya and Pilot were looking forward to was some alone time with Zan because she was going to sing and she brings this presence and this peace to them. And it's, you know, it's like, hey, we got to break from all the kids kind of situation it felt like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for certain. So Zan sucks Kahenu into John's module. She has that moment of like, oh, no, in my anger, what did I do? And I'm like, Zan, come on. That was not a fit of rage. That was <laughs> You do a lot of things in anger. <laughs> <laughs> so Kahenu has been sucked through. And then the ship is still shutting down. The ship is still dead. And, and Zan's kind of having to deal with that. Mm-hmm. 
But then he's obviously not dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Zan is, uh, she's giving Pilot last rites, and that's part of how she's coping with it. She's following through all some of the rituals of her, her belief system to give him peace, to give console herself in the process. And she's grieving. She's legitimately grieving. And that's when Kahenu reappears. And why don't we just play the clip and then we can talk about it. May the goddess recognize the gentleness of your spirit and guide you to your ancestors. You live. As does Moya. repellent game is this? Upon my first exploration of Moya, I knew the circumstances that produced her gunship offspring. And I knew she was a worthy soul. Then why did you put her through this? To see if you were worthy. These are gentle beasts who will ultimately follow the directions of those in control. Should you desire it, priestess, you could produce an army of killing machines. But Zan would never... Of course she wouldn't. We know that now. We are confident that you will protect Moya vigorously against those who seek to exploit her. You are worthy of that responsibility. If that is so, then I demand you leave this ship immediately. As you wish. But first, Moya wishes to speak with you. Sam. One request. Anything, Moya. Sing. <laughs> so we find out that it wasn't a test for Moya. It was a test for Zan to see if... Moya had someone to care for her that Kahenu thought was worthy of protecting her. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, how do you feel about this plot? Because I'm kind of with Zan on the mixed feelings about it. I think that mm, I think that much like a lot of things they do on Farscape, there's an element of me that kind of wants to ask a lot of questions about it and be like, but wait, if you shut down Pilot to the point where his body no longer had any nutrients and he was essentially unconscious, that actually does do damage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like we can't pretend. And same for Moya, I imagine. You know, you can't just shut a body down to the point of it's this is not the movies. You know, you can't just <laughs> shut a body down to the point of death and then bring it back and there's no side effects. But at the same time, I think that the element I like about this is that there's a God out there that sees Zan as somebody worthy of protecting Moya. And mm -hmm. that's the part that resonates with me because yeah. that's the part that feels true to the characters. The rest of it, I think is just sci-fi mumbo jumbo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I appreciate that part of it also. And not only that thinks Zan is worthy, but is looking out for Moya's best interests and trying to make sure that she is not with people who are going to hurt her. But at the same time, yeah, going through that whole process, like, I'm totally with Zan on kicking him off the ship. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Leave. Go away. <laughs> I think that what I really, 
I think that even though this was like a super problematic plotline, I think that what I did enjoy was this is the first time that we as an audience have heard Moya. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say. I think it's also the last time we ever actually hear Moya's voice. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So that was interesting for me. And it was also interesting... I don't think we learned anything really new about Zan's character because she kind of came through as somebody who uses violence when it's her last option, mm-hmm. you know? And then I think that, yeah, I just like the idea of Moya as a gentle beast and that anybody that would create that gentle beast would want to make sure that there was somebody protecting them, Yeah, you know? Because I think yeah. that that's kind of the the odd part is that the peacekeepers, they put control collars on Leviathans, but it kind of sounds like Leviathans would pretty much follow the commands of whoever is in charge. So then maybe the control collars are actually on the Leviathans more to control the pilots rather mm-hmm. than to control the ships themselves. I could definitely see that, especially with as we saw in The Way We Weren't with Miss Pilot, who was Moya's original pilot, and how resistant she was to the peacekeeper control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this new relationship, I don't think it changes fundamentally Zan and Boya's relationship, but there's more of a weight to it. And I think that theme of responsibility of Zan looking out for Moya's best interest, I'm pretty sure it does come up again in later episodes. It's not one of those things that's there all the time, but, but periodically that'll come up. Mm-hmm. And also, I think it's like a good resting place for this plotline because they needed... Because from the Watsonian perspective, they needed Moya not to be around. Because if Moya mm-hmm. was around during the whole John plotline, then pretty much none of the stuff would have happened. He would have gone. They would have Moya. just left. Yeah, they would have <laughs> just left. And I think it was a. I think it was a lot better than kind of what the other characters end up thinking happened to Moya, which is that they end up thinking that Pilot and Zan just got lost. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, from a storytelling perspective, it's a lot more satisfying to have this this little confrontation with the builders and. And learn something new about Moya and how where she came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because up until now, it's just been kind of a mystery. You're like, okay, sure, a mechanical living ship. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Though really, I, would, I was there for that premise to begin with, so you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And like, I'm not saying that I'm against it, because actually, I really enjoy it, obviously. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. So there's two other plot lines that are going on. There's the what's going on with John's head plot line. <laughs> I love that we can say that. That makes me so happy. <laughs> right? Only on Farscape. Legit only on Farscape. Uh, and then there's also the Aaron and Casanova get stranded in the desert plotline. Yes. Let's save the John one for last because that's the biggest one. And let's okay. jump to Aaron and Casanova <laughs> in the desert. <laughs> So at the end of last episode, Casanova had invited Aaron out to the Barrenlands. She turned him down in that conversation we listened to where she's like, it's not you, it's me. I don't like you. Just great, <laughs> classic Aaron. But at the end of the episode, after she decides she can't go to John's wedding, she basically invites him to go with her to the Barrenlands and says, keep up. And Aaron's idea of a good time in the Barrenlands is climbing a cliff face. <laughs> next to the ocean and it's not a pre-plotted route so it doesn't have the the dowels that you strike into a cliff face i'm not a climber i don't know i kind of only know what i see on tv so she's basically free climbing it to start with and then hooking herself in as they go up and casanova is like yeah i was rated expert and (laughs) spoilers he wasn't an expert 
Yes. <laughs> things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, Casanova falls because Casanova is kind of supposed to be the opposite of John in a lot of ways. And I think that John perhaps would have been more honest about his climbing abilities. <laughs> and Casanova freaks out about halfway up. And Aaron's like, why are you freaking out? I already, you know, put the, I already put the stake in, you know, your rope's secure. And he's like, oh, I can't do it. And so then she's like, okay, I thought you were rated expert. And he's like, in the gym <laughs> at the training facility. And I'm like, oh my gosh, dude, why didn't you say that like at the bottom of the hill? Because he wanted to smooch Aaron and he wanted to impress her. Boys. <laughs> what is in Aaron's lips that makes men <laughs> so, do so many crazy things for this woman? I'm just saying. I don't know. I don't know. Though to be fair, I'd kiss her. Oh gosh, right? <laughs> I would climb a mountain for her though, but that's mostly because I super do not like heights. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so anyway, she climbs down and she's like, grab onto my hand. And he grabs onto her hand and then he also grabs onto her leg and he pulls them both off the mountains. And this was when I was like, wait, I thought the lines were secure. I know. I had that thought too. I was like, Aaron, why did you secure yourself better? Anyway, plot, plot, plot. So they fall, yeah. they both get injured. Aaron has a broken leg. Casanova, it's implied that he has some serious internal injuries. And they are miles and miles from anybody or any kind of security or anything that's going to find them. So, of course, Aaron, being the badass that she is, rigs up such a voice for the Casanova dude and pulls him with a broken leg inland. And it mm -hmm. takes him like two days to get to anybody to, who can help them. Yeah. This is kind of how Aaron is initially feeling about Casanova and we're going to play it because it's classic Aaron. Please! Please! Stop dragging you! No, but it... I know. It hurts. <laughs> you want it to not hurt. Uh... Well, next time, hold on to the frilling wall! <laughs> <laughs> because no one will kick you when you're down like Aaron will. <laughs> Right? Oh, my, oh gosh. my gosh. So she is completely fed up with him. She's annoyed by his advances. She's only used him to get out into the barren lands to give her something to do while she's ignoring John and her emotions around John. And he pulled them off the side of the mountain, and she's super pissed off about it. Rightly so. Let's put that out there. Yeah. I'd be pissed too. Oh my gosh. That's just such classic Aaron. <laughs> no empathy. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, not wrongly so. Come on, dude. Like, don't hold on. That's like holding on to somebody when they come to you when you're drowning. You're like, no, don't hold right. on to them. They will drown with you. <laughs> mm hmm Yeah. And not only that, but he also put them in danger by lying about his expert skill level. I mean, that's 101 safety. Don't fight off more than you can chew on something like this. Yeah, exactly. So... They end up dragging themselves through the desert, and Aaron initially kind of feels that way about him in terms of, I hate you, you did this to me, you're a bad person, and <laughs> no empathy. <laughs> but then he has a little bit of self-awareness at the campfire, and we find out that even though she feels that way about him, he's 100% aware of why she decided to come with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'd be lying here helpless, giving up. Crichton were back there waiting for you. You wouldn't understand. Does 
your leg hurt? It's broken. I'm trained to deal with that. That's the answer. You're not trained to deal with emotions, so you're afraid of them. Emotional pain. You wear like a badge. It means you've been there. And it can't get calloused. Because each fresh hurt stings like the first. Why would you want that? Because of all the days before it hurts. The good days. When you're in love. It's too bad. You can't get back to at least tell Crichton how you feel. What difference would it make? He's a frelling statue. But he can hear. He can see. He'll know, Aaron. At least he'll know. Oh, it's so heartbreaking in some senses because remember at this point, she was avoiding his wedding where he was being turned into a statue. And she thinks it's completely over. Like, all her chances are gone with John because he is now A, married to someone else, B, a statue, with no hope of it not happening of not being a statue like this is this is it this is game over for her and it's just you know that whole what's the point it's just it's so heartbreaking because yes there is a point for you Aaron you know it's not about mm -hmm. you and John now it's about you processing this loss and grieving for it and dealing with it in a way that's healthy and I just really like Casanova here for for being the one who can articulate to that because almost mm -hmm. Because he's a stranger looking at it from the outside, it almost gives his words more weight. Whereas Chiana has been telling this to Aaron all week, and Aaron has been brushing Chiana aside and brushing Chiana aside. But here now, this person who's like completely foreign to the situation, this is what seems to finally get through to her. Yeah, it's so good. And also, I think that he makes a good point. Like Aaron is used to dealing with physical pain. This is something she's been trained to. But we've trained we've also talked about how the peacekeepers almost actively trained their soldiers to be unable to deal with emotional pain. Mm -hmm. Because when you have a situation where you tell people, "Okay, your only relationships can be temporary. Your only relationships you're are going to be without children." You will never be able to transfer together. You will never be able to stay together longer than your assignment. It's essentially you're training people to completely devoid themselves of romantic attachments mm -hmm. and to just treat and to treat emotions like something that's a problem rather than something that's a side effect of sex. Right. They're also not supposed to get attached to anybody or anything. You know, they're completely interchangeable parts. Mm -hmm. And and that's what she cannot cope with. Well, and also it's it's an interesting idea of her kind of asking, well, then why would you want to deal with this? Mm -hmm. Because then that means that she has been thinking about this and she has been feeling those things and she's already gotten the hurt. Yeah. You know, she's hurt by this relationship and what's happened with John. But she hasn't really understood the why mm -hmm. yet. Do you know what I mean? The why would I want to try and fix this if it hurts so much right now? And he kind of articulates this idea of because the rest of it is worth it. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't say because someday it won't hurt, you know, because someday you're going to be in a relationship that won't end and you're just going to be happy forever <laughs> because that's not really true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he's very clear that it's like it hurts as much the first day as it does or it hurts as much over time as it does the first time it hurts at all, you know? It's, it mm -hmm. hurts as fresh as the first. 
And, uh, but the other thing with Aaron not understanding why, it's still something she hasn't fully articulated to John or said out loud. And I think she's still, there's part of her that's still in denial about her having strong feelings for him, that she wants to be in a relationship with him, that she's starting to fall in love with him. Because mm-hmm. she's kept dancing around it. Every conversation she has had with John so far has been, I'm proud of you because you're the Crichton I know. And I wore the stuff in my hair just as she initially deflects that. It's like, it's just for me to like, not for you to like. So all these sorts of deflections of, of her actual feelings coming out. And I feel like this conversation is the first time she's as much honest with herself as she is with anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also, I think it's interesting that she kind of chooses this guy to be honest with, because almost this guy doesn't matter Mm -hmm. to her so much, and also because she verbally doesn't have to say anything, almost. He pretty much puts it out there. He's the one that puts it out there of, I know you're in love with Crichton, I know that's why we're out (laughs) here, and I know that you're not trained to deal with this, and... And, like, he just knows so many things about her, which kind of makes me think that, like, maybe he is a better guy than he initially appears yeah. to be. Do you know? Yeah. No, he, I like him as a character. You know, he even says that in, bef- in an earlier conversation between the two of them. Like, I, I'm, I'm here to be a diversion for you. I want this to be a happy one-night stand for you or something. You know, whether or not he like, goes to sex or not, whatever. But <laughs> he's willingly taking on that role. And he does seem like a genuinely good person, whether or not he's still kind of dickish and under around it with like not telling her about not being an expert. That was kind of a dick move, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I think that, you know, probably under it all, he is a good, you know, he's a good guy. So they end up continuing to go inward and Aaron continues to be in pain and he gets better about handling his own pain. And then they are finally spotted and rescued. And I have to point this out because it was literally the best thing I noticed. They are spotted and rescued by the same guy that initially saw Aaron and Rigel (laughs) kiss by the guy that like approached Aaron and Rigel. And like, she was like, no, I'm going to make out with Rigel. instead. And it's so funny. And I 100% know why they did that. And that's because if you speak in television, they have to pay you a certain <laughs> amount. So I guess they figured, we're just going to have the same guy speak twice. And then we're, it's going to cost less yeah, money. Yeah, probably true. But yeah, it is It is the same guy. He uh, sees them, he gets them help, and then they come in. And so that's Aaron's main storyline for the majority of the episode. And she comes back in, obviously, at the end. And we'll, we'll get to that at, because it intersects with John's storyline. So mm-hmm. in John's storyline, we have setting up the players. We have John. We have Chiana. We have Dargo. We have Scorpius. We have Scarens. We have the Empress. We have Tino. Does that everybody? Katrala, but... I have some feelings about her role in this episode, and I'm a little bit upset at the writers. <laughs> we have who else? Oh yeah, we have Genavia and oh Genavia, she's very important. Yeah, like Genavia is super important, and we also have her coward of a fiance, Clavor. Clavor. See, I don't like him so much that I forgot he existed for a minute. <laughs> I'm literally like, Taz, he's like the entire reason this episode happened, though. <laughs> I know, I know, but oh my god, he's such a weasel. Such a weasel. So the episode begins where the second one left off with John Frozen and Dargo and Chiana have a really sweet moment with John where we find out that he can also communicate with people on the outside. 
through this like radio transmitter. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> Only his cells are cased in bronze. Apparently his neurons aren't. I don't know. They still can think and hear and, and see and everything. And communicate. That's my issue, though. I'm like, okay, I'll give you like the thinking and hearing and seeing whatever. I'm like, <laughs> how are they communicating? Is this telepathy? I yes, don't it's telepathy. <laughs> it has to be. It's it's. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Okay, hand wave. Because they have the right they have the same voices and now I'm really bothered by the fact that they don't have voice boxes to use. Yeah. Hand wave. Yeah. Hand Magic wave. Farscape technology Magic comes technology. again. <laughs> um okay, so then it cuts to nightfall. And this is another part that made zero sense for me is that there's guards around in the daytime, right? And then yeah. there's no guards around at nighttime when it seems like you would actually need guards around, right? Claymore right. and the Scarin show up and Claymore's like <laughs> screaming at, at John, right? And then mm-hmm. he and then he's like, Well, whatever, you know, and he's really mad. And then the Scarin's like, Well, let's have an easy fix. And they cut off John's head. John's bronze head and cut it off. And then they take it to what a foundry or something where there's a vat of acid and they drop it in there it's like under the castle there's like all these acid things i, I know understand. it's like a, it's like a manufacturing plant maybe it's where they make the the dining ware or something i don't know but anyway there's a vat of acid in some sort of manufacturing place and they drop his head in with the idea that if John's head dissolves and never no one ever finds his head, he can't be reconstituted. He'll effectively be dead. He and Katrala will no longer be the happy married couple that the law requires. And so Claver will become the new crown prince again. Okay. <laughs> I'm still, I, I think I'm going to differ with you. And I still believe that randomly this castle has giant pits of acid in its basement. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not like Yellowstone. It's not naturally occurring. They have to have some use for it. Yeah, but I'm literally saying that there's no (laughs) explanation. That, like, this is one of those hilarious times that, God love it, that nobody is like, oh, wow, now that we're at the foundry. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It literally just looks like I cut off his head, walked down to the basement, and threw it in. True. I can't argue with that. I'm just trying to come up with headcanons that'll help explain yeah. some of the most illogical things this show does sometimes. I know. And I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I'm 100% on board <laughs> with, like, all of the acid scenes. I'm just also, at the same time, like, what palace has vats of acid in the basement? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, anyway. So they dump the head in the acid. They leave it there, uh, supposedly to just disintegrate. Scorpius shows up four hours later, finds the head, has this whole monologue to the head like he's in Hamlet, and then... John can hear him, though. I mean, I'm just saying. Uh, Which brings us to another point. Okay, so John is bronze, right? Yes. All of his cells are encased in bronze to prevent aging, right? Yes. How is Scorpius planning on getting his memories out, given that he can't re, like, he can't make John's head human again, right, without John immediately dying? And also given the fact that there's no way he's going to be able to get a hold of John's body. I would not put it past Scorpius to have already had a plan for all of these things. I just don't know what it is. Okay. 
Yeah, let's make that our headcanon. <laughs> that Scorpius has a plan. Yes. He just doesn't bother telling us because he's not he's not the James Bond sort of monologuing villain. Right. He is just the Hamlet monologuing kind of villain. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, I mean, I actually 100% think that in his own head, he probably is Hamlet. You know? Oh, totally. He has the tragic backstory and everything to go with it. Don't worry, no spoilers. That's all I'm going to say about it. But yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, we we kind of already have a hint of it, given that the Scarin was like, he's half Scarin. He's an abomination. He's an abomination. Yes, yes. Oh, Everyone thinks he's an abomination from both sides. Yeah. Where so... were we? Head. Okay. Head. So, yes, yeah, so Scorpius, with his nefarious plan to reconstitute John's body somehow that he doesn't tell us, Gets interrupted in his monologuing by someone sneaking around in the foundry basement underneath the castle. And he gets knocked out by an energy blast. And mysterious person swoops in and saves John. And it is none other than Genavia, the PK disruptor, who rescues his head. And ultimately rescues John by secretly getting him back into the machine that makes him a statue and reversing the process. It's actually a pretty mm-hmm. hilarious conversation where she's got the headset on and she's talking to him and he's like, is this going to work? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you might die. <laughs> because remember, and and if the logic of why Jen, like, we're, I'm going to call her Jenna because I... That's easier I to say. It's Genavian. Yeah. yeah. It's easier to say. So... The the logic is that she's there to disrupt Clavor from getting the throne. Right. And that's her entire reason for being. So now that she knows that John isn't a PK, another PK spy, she still wants to help him because he will still help her accomplish her mission. Right. And she needs him alive to do that. Yeah. And she needs him alive. And so she takes him to her secret camp by a river. <laughs> <laughs> You talk about having trouble with the foundry underneath the castle. I have trouble with their secret camp by the river for some reason. Right? Because I'm like, how did they get there when everybody is literally looking for... They're in a city! Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. Anyway, hand wave. I'm good with hand Hand waving. Secret camp by a river. (laughs) How romantic. (laughs) And she confronts him. And I want to play that conversation. There's more, but... That pretty much sums it up, yeah. That is either the most pathetic fabrication I've ever heard or the most pathetic life I could ever imagine, either way. Oh, look, there aren't some whacked-out antecedents to a chick with a stiletto on her wrist. Better. So, did you kill Scorpy? Leave bodies lying around. They look for a killer. It's not like he's going to report the assault. And why choose me over him? Because I couldn't give a crag's ass about anything but my job. Prevent the Scarons from getting a claw on this empire. You're my best chance of making that happen. Assuming I'm willing to play Garden Gnome for the next 80 cycles. John, if I fail, so many innocent lives will be lost. Do my job. And I'll help you get what you want, whatever it is. You know, things never work out like you plan. It's what makes it fun. All right, can I just say I really like Jenna a lot? 
Oh, I know. Me she too. is just, I like her so much. She is just great. And I think what really cemented it for me, you know, back when I first watched it, back when I rewatched it now, is that when she says that's half the fun and you get this whole sense of who she is as a person, why she has this job as a disruptor, why she's good at it, you know, plans not going to plan. Well, that's half the fun. That means she's so good at impro- improvising at taking what she's given and working with it. And you see that with John in this whole plot arc where she didn't expect somebody to be compatible with Katrala and she's making it work for her. And it's really great. And the other thing I like and I think this is part of what John likes about her, too, is that she is serious, or at least she sounds to me serious, about caring about millions of people dying. You know, she has that ideal that Aaron has of the peacekeepers being this really big force for good in the universe and really holding on to that ideal and why she's doing what she's doing, that faith in her mission. And she's not wrong, to be honest. Yeah. Like, in this case, this is one of those cases where you're like, okay, you know, the peacekeepers are kind of right in the sense that balance needs to be maintained. Because ironically, her job isn't get Claivor on the peacekeeper side and then marry him and then have a peacekeeper foothold. Her job is literally keep this a neutral yeah. space. So I actually really enjoy her a lot. And she's it's nice to see somebody else that's completely capable the same way Aaron is. Yeah. You know? The same way a lot of women on Farscape yeah. are. Yeah. So they end up staying the night in Genevian's um, super secret camp by the river. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get over the stupid camp. Anyway... She has this nice little camp with a tent and like, I don't know, it just seems all decked out and everything. Then we eventually cut to a scene in the middle of the night where there's moonlight shining on the water and John and Jenna are all wrapped up in each other's business and totally making out and having sex. And it's kind of cute and sweet, but then there's part of me is like, oh, John, really? John, no. <laughs> ah, gosh, Right. That was actually literally my reaction was I'm like, why? You've you spent two whole hours tied up in this whole, I mean, two whole hours of television, which is days Mm -hmm. tied up in this whole thing with Aaron and Katrala. And then now you're going to like, I mean, I guess maybe it's like a stress relief. And probably on Jenna's part, it's just that she doesn't like her fiancé so much that it's nice to have sex with somebody she wants to have sex with. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame Jenna at all. I mean, here's this guy that she's been helping out. She likes him well enough. She's been on this mission with Claver of all people. Had to hang around the Scarin all the time. Have to be this, like, role. And she gets to let her hair down in this situation, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's John, who is... I think it really is someone available and stress-free and he can take out everything that he's got wrapped up in Aaron with her. But at the same time, it's mm-hmm. like, John, seriously, not cool. Mm-hmm. It feels weirdly more like a Kirk thing than a John Crichton mm-hmm. thing, if that makes sense. Like, it kind of feels like something they did because they're like, he's the space hero and he goes around and he sleeps with everybody. And I'm like, what? You can't make a three-part arc in your television series about will John and Aaron work out their emotional difficulties and have sex again? And then be like, oh, and in the middle, he has sex with some rando chick. Yeah. Well, that's your double standard for men and women right there. You know, men are expected to and can get away with that sort of thing. Whereas women are sluts if they do that. Yeah. 
I mean, think about it. Like if Aaron had gone off and had, you know, and like Casanova hadn't fallen and gotten injured, Mm -hmm. you know, we would be all like, oh, no, she's cheating on John. And I'm like, who cares? She (laughs) deserves it. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, as John and Jenna are doing the, you know, Beast with Two Backs, everybody is going crazy looking for John because initially they're just looking for John's head and the empress is furious and the empress is like if you know john doesn't have his head no off world will have their head yeah and so she's threatened to kill all the off worlders and rigel freaks out because he's like last time she threatened to do that she did and so he and dargo and shiana their number one priority is now to recover john's head and find john's body now that his body has walked off And they go talk with Scorpius about it, and Scorpius is like, I want to find him as badly as you do. And the Scarin comes up. I can never remember his name, but the Scarin sees Dargo and Scorpius talking and is like, you are colluding, you're allies, I don't care what you say about being enemies, I can see that you're really working together. And so he ends up getting into a fight with them, or Dargo really, and doing the mind blasty thing on Dargo, who says, Chiana is looking for them too. And basically pointing the Scarin to Chiana, which is kind of scary because he's going to go after Chiana for beating Dargo up. Yeah. And it's also you can see on Dargo's face because and this is one of those things where I'm like, what does the Scarin mind blasty thing actually do? Because immediately after Dargo is like, Chiana doesn't know anything. Oh, my gosh. What did I just do? And so I'm like, wait, is it just is it just like torture? So you just say something to get it to stop, in which case, like most people would just lie, mm-hmm. which makes it a super ineffective I think, kind of strategy. Well, so so we've seen Janavian, who granted has had training to resist it, be able to resist it. And we've seen it work really well on Claivor, who just gives up everything when it happens to him. But he's also been shown as a weak-willed individual. So I think there's a combination of things going on because it is billed as like a heat thing. Like they're frying your brain and making you feel terrible at the same time. And it seems like it's like, I don't know, maybe surface thoughts that are coming out. Mm -hmm. And maybe it is you say whatever is most immediate on your mind in order to get it to go away. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's one of those it seems to fit the situation kind of devices. (laughs) Okay, and I actually want to go back also sure. for a moment because everybody is looking for John's head and then all of John. And at no point does anybody ask Katrala, who also has the ability <laughs> to speak and see and hear, hey, what happened to John's head? Like That's so true. And it bugs the living heck out of me. I mean, it. I would use bigger swear words but honestly I would just not stop swearing because I think that is the biggest ET mm-hmm. moment in this entire three episodes that is so true I hadn't really thought of it that way but I'm glad you pointed that out because yeah that's like the duh of course they should have asked her she's not just a pigeon post right now because like she and it isn't even like oh only John could speak you know, but Katrala can't for some reason. Because later in the episode, she speaks, you know? So I'm yeah. literally like, yeah, I don't understand why there's this whole thing of like, oh, no, you know, who did it? And everybody's like, well, it's obviously the Scarens. And they're all like, well, the Empress knows that, but she's still going to kill everybody. I'm like, why? 
I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Just kill the... Just, first of all, if you don't feel comfortable antagonizing the Scarran Empire, send him to the edge of space with his ship and then imprison your son. Like, I don't understand mm-hmm. this. Anyway, so everybody's looking for John. <laughs> Everyone's looking for John. And how it evolves is the Scarran gets a hold of Chiana. John and Genevian come back to the palace. Yeah, so the Scarran has Chiana, and Scorpius has already proposed an alliance with Dargo like four or five times over the past three episodes. He keeps trying to get Dargo to give John up. And I think he under I think he actually really underestimates the family nature of the relationships on mm-hmm. Moya at this point, that Dargo isn't like the green servant from episode two that he could just buy off. Dargo and John actually have a much deeper relationship. But I think this is the first real hint we have. And I really, if you've never watched the series before, you want to stick a pin in this thought. And if you have watched the series before, then this is like such great foreshadowing. For yes. John and Scorpius's relationship. And why do you think I'll help you? He has Chiana. And you want her. And you don't. I want John Crichton. You'll never get Crichton. He'll die first. You underestimate the strength of a relationship. Even your friend does not yet understand. Ooh. When I saw that on the rewatch, and I know I've seen this episode a ton of times, but it still gets me every single time. You do not understand the nature of our relationship. Even your friend doesn't understand. And that's the thought to put a, put a pin in. Mm-hmm. And it's so true in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think on rewatch, the foreshadowing just becomes so much better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because... Yeah. Initially, when this show initially aired, it wasn't like today. You know, it wasn't like instant replay. It wasn't like you could go online and rewatch the whole series. And they definitely did not drop whole series in one weekend, you know? No, they didn't. A lot of this, you know, the writing evolved somewhat organically. I think that obviously by this point they knew what they were doing. They want they love Wayne Pingram, who plays Scorpius so much that they wanted him back for season season two, but they wanted to make sure that he was a worthy opponent of John. And so they came up with really wonderful ways to bring him back into the story. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of, of the things that they'd had planned out for the season. And then parts of it, I think came about organically too, but it was really well executed. And if you're watching for the first time, just, just love the Scorpio storyline. It's terrific. Oh yeah, definitely for certain. And like, and that's the weird thing about the rewatch is I'm like, all this is so well done. Like if, if this was airing now, then this would be kind of like a lost sort of thing where people would be like double analyzing it and like triple analyzing <laughs> it, you know, because it's so good. And then when you go back and you look, you're like, oh, wow, they like they did have some idea what they were doing, you know? Yeah. To be fair, we super analyzed it when it came out. It's just we didn't know what to look for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Farscape message boards were hopping. So we're at the point where... Scorpius and Dargo have aligned together to go find Chiana, and Scorpius is hoping that Dargo will turn John over in return for helping out. Dargo obviously wants to save Chiana because he loves her a lot or is in like with her a lot. And John and Genevia have reappeared at the palace because it's the next day now. And 
Quick note, Genevian gives one of the little compatibility vials, offers it to John, and he immediately says, we're not compatible, without even trying it out. And so it's like, it was a one-night stand for him, clearly. And he doesn't see a future. And she's chill with that. She throws it over her shoulder with, again, the annoying whoosh sound it would never make. And they move on from there as allies, companions, friends. Not only mm-hmm. they're even friends, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Battle buddies. And... Before John and Genevia have appeared, the Scarin and Claivor have a very public fight where <laughs> Claivor is like, now I am going to be emperor. And it was because of no help of yours because John has run off or disappeared or something. And so he tries to jilt the Scarin, which I'm <laughs> like, dude, what? That is not a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And the Scarin kills him with the heat yeah. thing. With the heat and thing. He- yeah, so it's like a massive sunburn death. And so Rigel is at Clavor's body crying because he doesn't want to die, and he's begging Tino, and he's like, well, the, the Empress has to know that this is scaring work, and Tino's like, yeah, of course she does. She's just really pissed at this point. <laughs> she hates everyone. And because she can kill everyone, she's going to. It's so good. And so then <laughs> Genevian and John show up slightly a few minutes apart. She is still acting as the loving fiance. Distraught. Distraught. And apparently nobody asked where she was overnight because whatever. <laughs> Katrala probably knew. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Katrala knew. <laughs> but nobody asked her. <laughs> oh my gosh why would you ask the only eyewitness to a crime anyway then once john shows up all the executions are off and then john goes to find dargo and chiana because he has the only weapon that's not held by one of the empress's guards on the planet right because there's a weapons band yeah yeah but jenna had given him a special necklace that acts as a weapon right we are now back in the foundry with the acid pit, which Shiana is now hanging above with the Scarin threatening to drop her in if John Crichton is not given up or at least killed or something. Scorpius and Dargo come in, and Scorpius starts to act a little bit like he's not feeling so well. And this is where we learn a little bit more about Scorpius and his physiology. And one thing I didn't note a couple episodes ago, and I wanted to ask, we see him in one of the, I think it's part one, where he actually has his cooling rods open. His, his, there's a stick sticking out of his head, and there's a red, and then it's replaced by PK Tech with a blue one. And those are his cooling rods. Is that the first time we've seen them on the show? Or did no. we see them before? I think we saw it We saw it when we first were introduced to Scorpius. Okay. I think... So back at the end of season one. Yeah, back at the end of season one. Okay. And I don't think they had an explanation with them at that time, though. But we get the explanation now with the Scarin taunting Scorpius. Yes. Defeated by nothing more than your own suspicions. Too hot in here, Scorpius. What's the matter? When he becomes incapacitated, I shall turn full attention to you. Nothing, it's nothing. Don't listen to him. Because if you do, you know this mutant's weakness, that his Scarron half loves the heat, thrives in heat, craves heat. But his peacekeeper half is destroyed by that same warmth. Is this true? 
thermal regulator suit. Cooling rods inserted directly into his brain. Tell me the rumors are true. Please tell me your search for thermic constancy is tormentful. I kind of love that last line of the Scarens. Tell me that it's tormentful. <laughs> I want to know that it's painful for you. Which, what did Scorpius ever do to this guy? He existed. That's what he did. Yeah, that's true. So, in case we haven't said that, I think we did say it at the end of season one, but Scorpius is half Scarin and half uh, Sebation. And as we know, Sebations have heat delirium problems. If they get too hot, they go into a coma and they die, called the living death. Or they don't die, but it's a painful existence and they're put to death. Whereas Scarins have this heat weapon, they're very hot-blooded creatures, and they thrive in the heat. And so he has this warring constitution going on. And that whole black leather suit, the BDSM outfit, is a thermal regulating suit. And he has cooling rods. Mm-hmm. So I like this whole point about who Scorpius is. Because up until now, he has kind of been the man in black kind of mm-hmm. thing. Where up until these three episodes, he's just been really mysterious and really threatening. And then now we see him as a little more fleshed out. We get a little more backstory. I still at this point think you do not feel any empathy at all for Scorpius. He does not deserve your empathy. But at the same time, you're like, oh, that's an interesting note about his character. So that's Scorpius. A little bit more about him. That leaves Dargo, now that Scorpius is essentially down for the count, it leaves Dargo to try and rescue Chiana. And Dargo rescues Chiana, and then John shows up and helps out, and they don't kill the Scarin, or maybe they do. I can't tell. They do. They do. He gets knocked into the pit of the acid. Oh, that's right. Oh, gosh. Sorry. Because he goes back and forth with John. I know the episodes all run together. Um, Back and forth with John, and he's like, you can't hurt me. I'm too strong, because Scarins are really physically strong. And then John's like, well, maybe my gun can't hurt you or the weapon thing. And he jumps on a chain and kicks him into the acid where he dissolves like the Wicked Witch of the West. (laughs) Uh, I don't think anybody's sad to see this character go. He was really irritating. (laughs) I love that you call him irritating because I was just going to say obnoxious. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mildly threatening, but, you know, Scorpius is scarier still. Yeah, by far. So then Dargo and Chiana leave, and they leave John alone with Scorpius. And we're going to play a quick quote from Dargo and John. And like we said, put a pin in that thought from earlier of Scorpius saying our relationship is something that John doesn't even understand yet. Scorpius, is he dead? If he isn't, he should be by the time you come out. John leaves Scorpius alive at the end. 
and talk about people going crazy wondering what the hell Sean was thinking on the internet afterwards. There was a lot of debate about that. So it's a really interesting choice that John makes. And that screaming you heard in the middle was another flashback of John's to when he was in the Aurora chair with Scorpius. And so at the end, he, he cannot bring himself to kill Scorpius. And John has killed people before. I mean, this is mm-hmm. John post season one, post Nerve, where he cold bloodedly killed the commando. Yeah, in Bugs Life. In Bugs Life, where he's had a gun shooting people, where he's been trigger happy with PTSD now. Yeah, so I don't. He still hasn't killed a whole lot of people. I think John is still figuring out who he is in this new universe. But at the same time, this is the one person he is terrified of. We've seen him say to Aaron, this guy scares me. He's in the back of my mind, the corner of my eye. I can't shake him. And you would think that his choice, like Dargo said, would have been to kill him, but he doesn't. Mm -hmm. I think that in the sense that you and I know what's happening, (laughs) it's hard for us to debate about what it all means. I know. Because on the one hand, you know, If I wanted to make this a John characterization thing, I can't just because of what happens in the future and because I know what happens in the future and I kind of don't want to sound silly in about 10 episodes. Yeah. So (laughs) sorry for those watching the first uh, for the first time. We've probably given you like an emotion spoiler there, but it's true. So just pay attention to John and Scorpius. That's all I'm going to say. and We can leave it there. Yeah. So John leaves Scorpius alive. And then he goes back up to be frozen again. Mm-hmm. And at first he doesn't want to, but then there's a big reveal and he immediately does a, an about face and that we can talk about with John. So let's play it. You're the kind of man that would walk away from his own child. We would not want you to rule. Child, what the hell are you talking about? My daughter is pregnant with your seed. How? Whoa, how? no, 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 we never. Samples from the DNA comparison. Did you really think a system this stable would leave so important a detail to chance? Make me a statue. You change your mind so quickly. A child deserves two parents. My child deserves a father made me a statue. Councillor Taino, arrange for this honorable man to re-undergo the transmutation process. I'm afraid that's impossible, Empress. Recall that Crichton is not sebation. Based on our findings, human physiology would not tolerate the process a second time. What the hell are you talking about? If you stood beneath that machine again, you would die. She won't be defrosted for another 80 cycles. I'm not gonna live that long. I won't be there for them. I know. I'm sorry. You take my place. I can't. Nobody knows me, right? The public. They don't know who I am. Your unveiling was to be your introduction. Right. Councillor Taino can be your new kid. Their chromosomes are not compatible. It doesn't matter. She's already pregnant. So, John's gonna be a dad. <laughs> Surprise! Yep. Surprise! I think it's... I think it's so John that immediately upon finding out that Catralla is pregnant, his immediate reaction is, freeze me again. Mm-hmm. Family is something that's really important to him. It's like completely summed up in that scene right there. Like He will throw everything away to make sure that he will be a good father, a good parent. What he sees as his responsibility to take care of a family 
Like he says, I won't be there for them. And that's upsetting to him. And I think, you know, we've talked a little bit in early episodes about his relationship with his father. And I think that goes back to the family values that were instilled in him by his parents. And also the fact that in some ways, you know, with his father being an astronaut and being away for some of it, there's sometimes that feeling that his father wasn't there for him enough. And he doesn't want to repeat those mistakes. Yeah, I think it really does tie back to his own dad. Because in the episode where we first met the ancients, they one of the things that John says is when the his fake dad was like, what did we do on your eighth birthday? He's like, well, you weren't there. Again. You know, and again. So it's clearly that's an imprint for John. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, that is kind of, where John lives in terms of his own family is that he feels abandoned, even though he had a family. Mm -hmm. And so it is really sad for John. You know, he's not going to get to see his, his children grow up mm -hmm. because that's the other thing is like the Empress is like, they aren't compatible. I'm like, dude, she's already pregnant lady. Like, yeah. And you have multiple samples, <laughs> like just get him to give you a bunch of samples and freeze them. Right. Right. And that's the point John makes when he says to Taino, who does love Katrala to take his place and basically let's, you know, it's done. All you needed was that. And then this is another one of those moments of like, well, well, why do they need John if they're just going to get impregnated with his, his DNA? Why couldn't he have just been a sperm donor, period, you mm -hmm. know? Probably because it was so public yeah. that Catralla was incompatible with anybody else. Yeah. If it wasn't a public thing that she was incompatible, then they wouldn't have had that public display of her and John kissing and it being sweet. Right. And in this way, they're just going to make pretend that Taino is really John or, some, or the, the strange off yeah. or... I mean, or at that point, people might have forgotten what Taino looked like in the first place, you know? Yeah. Well, it's going to be 80 cycles in the in the future. Mm-hmm. So. so he does get to see a hologram of his daughter, similar to the one with the infant where he saw the little boy. This is actually, he's going to have a daughter. And it's really sweet and heartbreaking. And you can just see John's face breaking and that he's never going to meet this child that will someday come to be. One more thing he's losing. One more thing he's losing. And, you know, I kind of appreciate it, though, from a storytelling position, because this whole arc has been a fairy tale. And it's like, this is the price for his freedom is his firstborn child. Ooh, I really like that. Yeah. And so that's, that's the tragedy of this episode or this episode arc is that he's never going to meet his child, his daughter. And I really like that it brings a gravitas to this whole episode. It's not like he gets away scot-free or unscarred or anything, but there's this real loss. And the best fairy tales always have some sort of trade-off like that. Mm -hmm. So everybody ends up back on Moya. And like we said, they all are kind of like, well, Zan and Pilot won't say what happened, but <laughs> Dargo thinks they were lost. Chiana thinks they were afraid. And then we have Aaron, whose leg has been magically healed by magic. Advanced technology. <laughs> <laughs> Same reason that you could have broad statues that they can talk. <laughs> yeah. So John is working on his module again, and Aaron is working out. And like we said, this one of the plots of this episode has really been Aaron figuring out how to tell John her feelings. Mm -hmm. And she does it, I think, in a way that is very her. Like the scene after John says, I noticed that you haven't been talking to me or I noticed that you've been avoiding me then they don't speak to each other and it's all through actions and 
it's very precise actions. And what happens is Aaron comes up to John and she's very slowly and she's holding one of the compatibility vials and she offers it to him. And they do the compatibility, you know, put it on a drop on the tongue, touch the tongues and then kiss. And it's all silent and it's all in their faces. And it's just this beautifully acted moment between them. And then you don't get a hint of it. What the result was until the end when they, when Aaron turns around and she smiles and John watching her walk away, he smiles. And it's just like overflowing feels coming out of me at this moment <laughs> between the two of them, that they're both happy about it. They are. Cause it says Aaron wants kids. Yes. With John. I know we're kind of running late on time here, but I wanted to ask about that because mm-hmm. in the modern day and many conversations around these days about whether or not having a child is the fulfillment of a relationship. What would you think would have happened if it had not, they had not been compatible for children? And what would that have meant? I think that on Aaron's end, given modern, the way we think about it, and given that before now, she has never talked about wanting children. She's also never thought it was possible. Mm-hmm. But she's never talked about wanting a family the same way that, for example, Dargo has or the same way that Chiana has kind of been like, nah, I'm kind of young, don't really care, you know, and the same way that John actively does want a family. Yeah. Like, I think that if they had kissed and it wasn't sweet, I think the message still would have been from Aaron to John, I want to have a family with you. Yeah. And so a lot of times kind of that wanting, I think in their respects, especially would more than make up the message. Yeah. I like that. I like that because I do think it's important that she wants to have children with him too, because it's clearly something that he wants to have a family someday because having a relationship with those goals mismatched is not always going to be a steady long-term relationship because that can cause major rifts, you know? And so I mm-hmm. think kind of them being on the same page is important, knowing who specifically John is in this case. So I'm glad that it, it is implied heavily, because again, they don't speak that they are compatible to have children. Yeah, I mean, I think it is an interesting question, because I don't think it would have hurt their relationship mm-hmm. if they hadn't been compatible. Yeah. I think that these whole three episodes, I said way back in part one, that it's kind of about Aaron trying to figure out what she wants. Mm-hmm. And her being able to verbalize what she wants. And sure, she doesn't do it verbally. (laughs) But she successfully expresses it here. Yeah. And she's effectively figured out what she wants. And what she wants is to have a family with John. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Well, the modern woman in me is like, you don't have to have children in a relationship to have a fulfilled relationship. And so I feel like on the Doyleist level, the writer's message is, the only way to have a successful relationship is if a child is the end product, mm-hmm. which I don't believe on a personal, personally, I don't believe that. I think you can have a relationship without children and be successful and fulfilled and have a good life and all those sorts of things. So I think the difference between me at what, 16, when I watched this for the first time and me now at well over 30 in a relationship with someone I'm not sure I'm as keen on the message on the Doyleist level, but mm-hmm. from the Watsonian perspective, I really like it for John and Aaron specifically. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, that totally makes sense. And actually, that was like one of my hilarious things 
with the whole thing with everybody making out with each other with these little vials because yeah. I'm like, I mean, <laughs> does nobody on this planet believe in just like safe, consensual, fun, you know, baby free sex? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think that a lot of people that go out looking for one night stands are necessarily looking for the father of their unborn children. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was just kind of the last thought I had on that. And the last note about that scene is from what I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, David Kemper, who's the one of the show writers and executive producers, wanted that scene between John and Aaron of like having this kind of declaration of Aaron's part of intent that I like you, I want to build a family with you and John being on the, them being on the same page together finally about starting a relationship and moving it forward. And that scene was what spawned not one episode, not two episodes, but three episodes <laughs> to get them to that point. And I just kind of love that. Like that moment was so important that they came up with this really excellent trio of episodes to, to get them there. Mm-hmm. I mean, and on that note, what would you give this episode? Okay. I know we've kind of given this episode a hard time for being like unrealistic in a lot of ways, but I love it to pieces. And I'm going to give it a five because I think it wraps up the arc really well. It has a lot of really great moments. A lot of movement happens. Like this is one of our longest episodes that we've made on the podcast just because there was so much going on and there was a lot of it was really good stuff. Yeah. I don't know that I would go as high as a five because... I don't know that I loved it as much as, for example, Nerve and Hidden Memory. True. But at the same time, I would definitely give this like a 4.5. Because I think that if they had just closed at least one or two of the logic loopholes that I have with this episode, <laughs> it would easily be a 5. But I still love it. Like, oh my gosh, the Aaron stuff, the Aaron in the desert stuff. Ugh, so mm -hmm. good. John being badass, Scorpius. Oh, there's so much good in this episode. So I, I don't know. I would say I would say four and a half. Yeah. No, I, I I could see that. So wardrobe watch. Anybody wearing anything new? John was a bronze statue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, Aaron's in white climbing gear for a lot of the episode, and she strips down to a tank top, a black tank top. Everyone else is pretty much in their standard stuff. Even John eventually puts clothes back on. Yeah, he's got his, like, coat that, like, swirls a lot. Yeah, swirly coat his peacekeeper coat. Next week, we are watching Beware of Dog, which, as I remember correctly, is kind of a low-key episode, and kind of nice to come down off a high, high episode like this with that. Mm -hmm. If you want to get in contact with us or if you have any disagreements with our assessment of this episode, go ahead and hit us up. We are on Farscape Friday podcast at Tumblr, Dreamwith, and at gmail.com. We are Farscape Friday at Twitter. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.